an hour of truth for the battered but proud people of the Empire State. From the financial and entertainment epicenter of New York City to the sleeping and empty small cities and towns of upstate, which once bustled with manufacturing, mining, and farming. We all know from inspiration, history, and nature, we deserve a return to the success and growth of generations past, a birthright being squandered by corruption in Albany, and the depredations of an insecure, scheming mountebank posing as governor, who loathes both us and himself. As liberty beckoned to enslaved peoples behind the Iron Curtain via American broadcasts after World War II, we now say, believe, rise, and join us. Welcome to Radio Free New York. Hey guys, welcome to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister, and today I'm not in studio. Today I'm actually streaming from my office, and uh, Bob is actually out, so we won't be joined by Bob, uh, which means I'm going to need your guys' help with today's topics. I'm going to need you guys to call in, ask me some questions, and uh, also make sure you're commenting on the live stream. I've got the chat software open here, so I'll be able to see your comments as they come through. And as always, if you guys want to give me a call, you can call in at 585 346 3000. Once again, that's 585 346 3000. And uh, Garrett and Sean are calling it the Liberty Office or the Liberty Studio. So here we are. We've got a name for it. And uh, let's let's just jump right into today's topics. So elections coming up, right, especially in November, we're going to have a national election. And this is bringing to light once again conversations about the Electoral College. Um, so we're going to talk about the Electoral College and specifically one of the topics we're going to discuss um, is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Um, and I'm going to tell you guys all about that, but first I want to talk about the Electoral College, how it works. Uh, we're going to talk maybe a little bit about how primaries work, because a lot of people don't understand um, truly what's happening during a primary or even a caucus. And then the last thing we're going to try to hit today, and it depends on how far along we make it, there has actually been a bill proposed that could roll back some Prohibition-era gun control um, on the national level. So if we make it all the way through, we'll talk about that as well. If not, maybe we'll pick that up tomorrow. So um, going right out of the gate, once again, if you guys have questions, comments, concerns, uh, give me a call, send a comment. You can um, pull up the comments by jumping on either Facebook or YouTube, searching Andrew C. Hollister. You'll see this live stream as we're doing it right now. And if you post your comment, I'll check it and uh, see if we can include it in the conversation here. Um, so first and foremost, let's let's talk a little bit about the Electoral College, what it is, how it was created, um, what it is today, and let's talk about why people support it and why people oppose it. Um, so first and foremost, this the Electoral College is essentially resets every four years during the national election. So the same people um, are not always the same people voting in the Electoral College. When you go to vote at the ballot, um, you're not technically voting for um, the people listed as president. You're essentially casting a vote for the electors that are selected to vote on your behalf for president. Um, so that's kind of an important thing um, to know about. And 
this was really kind of resurfaced again in the 2016 election because Trump didn't win the national popular vote. Um, it's only happened a handful of times in history, and uh, that was 1824, 1876, 1888, Uh, some people were upset about that, partially because they didn't understand the process, partially because they didn't want Trump to be president, um, and in a mixture of things. And some people truly were just very put off by this whole thing. There's been a bunch of different movements that have started, um, but it's important to understand where the Electoral College came from. I've, I've heard a lot of... Um, Oh, what would I say? Suggestions or thoughts from people as, oh, it was for this. It was for these sort of rights or that sort of rights. It's not totally the case. The Electoral College was actually a compromise. And ironically, the Electoral College has only ever been used once in the way the Founding Fathers thought it was going to be um, used. So why did the Electoral College really come into play? Uh, it came into play because they felt that the general population could never learn enough about the presidential candidates. So essentially what happened is they, they looked at you know the vast land that was the United States and as it was growing, and they looked at the technology they had at the time and said, hmm, how are people going to find out who's running for president and what they stand for? Um, it, how how are these candidates going to reach all of these people? And they realized that there was really no way for them to do that um, at the time. So the Electoral College was was really actually something that got fought over a lot by the Founding Fathers. It's one of the things that um, was one of their hardest compromises. You'll see this in the federal paper, Federalist Papers where they go back and forth um, talking about you know, how hard it was to come to this decision. But essentially, what we formed in the United States is a representative-style government. Um, a lot of people say, we live in a democracy, and then uh, very often you'll be, you know, hear somebody correct and say, we live in a constitutional republic. Well, that constitutional republic is a representative democracy which means you as the voter don't vote directly on things like legislation. For example, you vote for a representative, and that representative then represents your interests, hopefully, um, when they create, craft, and vote on legislation. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more because this all is going to tie into each other. But the Electoral College um, was another step of representative government. And ironically, um, like I said, the, the Electoral College hasn't really been used how the Founding Fathers suggested they thought it was going to be used. Um, part of that is because when we we're founding our country, there was the idea that parties wouldn't truly exist. Um, it would be more about the people. It would be more about representation. 
and they thought that there would be many, many candidates for president. So not just two or three or four, but possibly 10, 12, 15, 16 candidates nationwide all competing for this spot. And your representatives would then select the right candidates um, based on the representation of the people. So that, that's kind of like a little bit of a, a brief overview. Let me give you guys a couple um, facts, if you will, about the Electoral College, a few things it's worth knowing about. Um, so the first thing is it's a temporary group of electors. Um, it changes every four years. However, it doesn't appear that there's any type of like term limits or anything like that. So electors can um, continue to be recycled through. Um, the, basically, there are a total of 538 electoral votes, uh, which is equal to the number of representatives in Congress. And the first candidate to get 270 of those votes wins the election. So, you know, you'll see very often um, some jokes about, like, certain states who have no say because all the votes are collected and tallied before their ballots are shipped off. Um, I believe Alaska is one of them. Um but something that I found really interesting that I didn't know the case, was the case is Gallup Polls, that does a lot of different polling, um, has actually kept decent records on polling of people's approval rating and whether or not they really like the Electoral College. And since 1944, their polls have actually shown that the majority of Americans um, wanted to do away and get rid of the Electoral College. This shift... Um, and this didn't change until kind of recently. In 2011 is where the polls started to shift. Um, primarily Republicans started uh, favoring the Electoral College more and more. And then in 2016, after the 2016 election, um, the polls showed Republicans extremely heavily um, favored the uh, electoral college and and they kind of attributed that to the results in 2016 and they think it's um, kind of like a blip in history it might go back to normal what it's normally been um, that has yet to be seen so guys what we're going to do we're going to take our first break here on radio free new york when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Electoral College, how states use it, and the changes that are being proposed, because these changes could really change how elections are done on the national level moving forward. We'll be back in a moment on Radio Free New York. listening to Radio Free New York. All right, guys. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister. We are talking about the Electoral College, how it works. Um, we've actually got some very good questions in the comments here about how electors are chosen and also New York State. I'm going to get the, to those in a minute. But first, we have Armando on the line from Canadagua. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And you're doing a real good job, Andrew, um, explaining the Electoral College. Um, I just wanted to add that there was also a fear of the, uh, the founders that uh, a mob would influence the outcome of an election. 
so they felt it was necessary to have the independent, well, that's not the right word, uh, an elect, electorate that could be independent from the physical force of voters. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct. In fact, um, I, I do have kind of like a pros and cons list here that I'm going to share with you guys later on the show. And and one of the, the people in favor of the Electoral College in that column um, is to prevent tyranny and mob rule because um, there is this fear that uh, people could motivate the populace um, or have kind of like majoritarian rule without the Electoral College. So, yes, thank you so much for calling in. That's a great point. Okay. All right. So we're talking about the Electoral College, and, and if you guys have any questions or want to call in, make a statement, please feel free to. Line is open, 585-346-3000. Um, you know, I'd love to hear from you guys about this topic. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit. There's there's two questions that I definitely want to address, or, or one statement, one question. One is from Garrett on YouTube. He wants to know how electors are chosen, um, and then Nate has a comment about um, New York State and how we might benefit as upstate from a similar process to electoral college here in New York. Um, so I'm going to get to those later in the show, guys. Um, but let let me explain just a little bit about. Um, how the president is actually elected, right? So most states in the nation, and this is changing, by the way, and that's why we're talking about this today. Most states in the nation are called winner-takes-all states, which means when you go to the ballot um, and place your vote for the candidate of your choice, um, you don't typically get representation unless your guy or gal wins. And we'll talk about how technically your vote is actually cast for an elector, not for the president. Um, but essentially, that's how it works. So you go to the polls, you, uh, you know, I guess now you don't pull a lever, you fill in the bubble, and um, you're essentially voting for an elector who's going to then vote um, theoretically for president, the president of your choice, unless his opponent's elector gets chosen. So um, what, what that means for you is that you're, you're technically not voting for president. You're technically voting for an elector to represent you. But in most states, um, that's not truly what happens. What happens is um, if the majority of the people vote for the candidate that opposes you, your votes also go to the candidate you opposed. So I, I actually – I think this is a, a crappy situation personally. We'll talk about that a little bit more, what I would favor in place. Um, Maine and Nebraska, however, have uh, a proportional system, and you'll probably see that on the election maps. You'll see they've got like little red and blue stripes in between them. Uh, that's because they, they're not winner-takes-all states. And they actually divvy them up. So it's a little more representative of the people. Um, and that is definitely something that I'm more in favor of. I think that uh, when you cast your vote, you should have the chance to have your voice represented. And I think in winner-takes-all states, um, that, that doesn't actually give real representation to the people. So uh, let's talk about real quick what happens if none of the candidates get the majority of the electoral votes. This is actually what the Founding Fathers thought was going to be a common occurrence. 
Um, and they had kind of a, a, a backup plan for this, or what they thought was going to be the primary plan for this, and that is that the vote would go to the House of Representatives, and the House members would choose your new president among the top three candidates. So the way they kind of envisioned this is, you know, you have, once again, they thought a lot of people were going to be running for president, 10 plus candidates across the nation. So they figured, you know, one candidate would have 50 electoral votes, another would have 60, maybe one would have 70, another that would have 100, a couple that would have 10 or 12, you know, this big spread, no majority getter, but that there would be three candidates that had the most. So the guy with 100, the guy with 70, and the guy with 60. Um, those three candidates would then be essentially voted on by the House of Representatives. And the House members would choose the new president among the top three candidates. And then the Senate would elect the vice president from the remaining two. So with that being said, um, that's actually how they intended for this system to work. And it only ever happened once. It happened in 1824 when the House of Representatives elected John Quincy Adams as president, and it hasn't happened since. Um, so that that's the process. That's how they expected it to work. Um, it did not. So let's let's talk very briefly about some pros and cons of the Electoral College, things who oppose it, uh, or people who oppose it, what they say, people who are for it, what they say. Um, and then in the next segment, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about how you choose your electoral um, representatives and how primaries work. Because the way primaries work and all the other stuff is um, different. It's, it's not how you typically think it is. When you vote for a candidate on the ballot, you're technically not voting for that candidate. All right, so pros and cons for the Electoral College. Um, people who oppose the Electoral College, um, they typically say things like, Land doesn't vote, people vote. Uh, we live in a democracy, things like that. Um, they, they also say that the reasons that the founding fathers created the Electoral College are no longer relevant. We have media, we have technology, we have the ability to, for candidates to now reach the populace. So maybe um, a representative style of government isn't required anymore. Um, they also say it gives too much power to swing states. It gives uh, presidential candidates the ability to really just campaign in a handful of states to win the nation versus paying attention to all the other states and their communities. Um, and their number three and probably the biggest one I hear often is that the Electoral College ignores the will of the people, that by taking away uh, kind of the majority rule vote, um, the majority of the people are not heard. Um, that one I can say right out of the gate. It's only happened a handful of times in history. Um, it, that, that could actually technically be true, but it's not statistically. It doesn't happen that way. So let's, let's talk about the other side. Let's talk about people who are for the Electoral College, people who say, yeah, no, this is a good thing. We should keep it. Here's why. Um, you know, Pro, pro number one, or, or kind of the thing that he, you hear the most, and we even had a caller who mentioned it, is it prevents mob rule. It prevents um, a large force from coming in or majoritarian style of government where the majority of the people impose their will on 
the the minority of the people. Um, the one thing I will say about this, though, is that that whole um, the state winning and winner takes all kind of creates that anyways, in my opinion. Um, so if if we want to get away from that, we have to get away from states that do um, winner takes all for their electoral representatives. Uh, another one that comes up is that uh, the founding fathers put the electoral college in the Constitution because they thought it was the best method to choose the president. Uh, number three would be um, that the electoral college ensures that all parts of the country are involved in the election process. And that one is another one I hear, especially in upstate New York, where you hear that things like the electoral college help protect rural communities from densely populated urban centers where, you know, these densely populated urban centers make up the rules, select the elections, do all of that. And then the rural communities kind of have no say because they just don't have enough people. Um, and then number three, people who support the electoral college, they say, uh, or number four, sorry, um, that guarantees certainty in the outcome of the presidential election. Like people know how it works, which I'm going to kind of dispute here. I think most people don't understand how it works. Um, and uh, the, the, it guarantees consistency, which that, I think, is definitely true. So, guys, those are pros and cons. We're going to take a brief break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, how your electoral, or your electoral representatives get selected and how you select presidents in your primaries and caucuses. We'll be back in a moment on Radio Free New York. Listening to Radio Free New York. All right, welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host Andrew Hollister. We're talking about the Electoral College, and we're talking about um, how things are selected. Who is an electoral um, representative for you? And that that really is what the Electoral College is. It's actually a system of representatives who elect pre the president on your behalf. And one of the things we talked about is this idea that most states are winner-takes-all states, which means your elected officials aren't actually um, truly a representation of you on the national level. It's just a representation of the majority in your state. Um, so Garrett actually had a really good question on YouTube. He, he wanted to know um, how are electoral representatives selected? And uh, so that's actually a great question. So your electoral representatives are going to be selected basically based on the uh, the party. So, for example, um, the Republican Party, they're going to select their electoral their electors and the Democratic Party, they're going to select their electors. And then as you vote on Election Day in November, you're actually voting for those electors. You're not voting for president. So when you vote for a Republican candidate, 
you're not voting for that candidate. You're voting for the elector. If you're voting for a Democrat candidate, same thing. A third-party candidate, same thing. You're not directly voting for that person to take office. Um, in fact, technically speaking, the election in November um, doesn't elect the president. It elects those electors, and then they get together. I believe it's the first or second week. I've, I've got it here for you guys in my notes. Um, they get together. I think it's the second week of December, and then the electors actually cast their votes for president, and they're not technically bound to do this in any specific way. Like, There's no federal law that says um, how the elector casts their vote. So an elector could choose um, – it might be against state law, but it's not against federal law. They could choose to vote against the representation that was selected. Like they, they can totally do that. Um, it doesn't happen – I was trying to find an example. I could have sworn I found an example before of times that this did happen, but the second time around I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. Um, so so that's actually how how the electorals – or the electors are selected is in the November election. But before that, you have to think about how do these presidential candidates get selected um, to have those electors, right? So this is a multi-step process. That's where primaries come in. And primary season is coming up, obviously, sooner than the general election. Um, it looks like there's a possibility that there's going to be a Republican primary um, there's definitely going to be a, a Democratic primary um, unless something crazy happens and everybody just drops out beforehand. Um, and so in New York, we use primaries. Other states also use caucuses. And these primaries and caucuses can be open primaries. They can be closed primaries, um, open caucuses versus closed caucuses. Um, an open primary means like anybody can vote in it. It doesn't matter what your party registration is. Whereas if it's closed, which is essentially what most parties have in New York, I think the Green Party may have open primaries. I'd have to double check. Um, but the Green Party doesn't typically have primaries. Um, so with that being said, you have to be registered Republican to vote in the Republican primary in New York. You have to be registered Democrat to vote um, in the Democratic primary. However, um, last time around, you guys may remember in the uh, 2016 primary, that kind of got changed a little bit in New York because some people came to vote in a primary and were told that they couldn't. Either they hadn't registered to vote or they hadn't switched their party in time. And there were some judges that essentially awarded them the ability to vote in the primary anyways, saying, who am I to prevent these people from casting their ballot? Um, so that did happen. I don't know what it's going to look like this year, to be totally honest. I don't know um, how that's going to carry out. But when you vote in a primary, you are also not voting for that person to become president or the presidential nominee. Instead, you're voting for delegates who are going to go to the national convention and represent you and your interests for that candidate. Um, so, so this is actually really important. When you go to your ballot and you see somebody's name there for president in a primary, you're not technically voting for that person. You're voting for a delegate who's going to go to the national Republican, national Libertarian, national Democratic 
um, convention, and it is you know they're they're going there as a representative of you to hopefully vote for that person that you selected. Um, so so this whole system that we have is actually a representative system um, for government and and specifically for the presidency. So now that you guys have all this information, which might be a little much to take in, you know, uh, for some of you, I may have just like shattered um, your understanding of how you elect a president and actually how you don't elect a president, a representative does on your behalf. Um, so I give you all this background so we can talk about this National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And what this is, is it is an agreement among United States um, states and the District of Columbia to award all of their electoral votes to whatever presidential candidate um, wins the popular vote. And this is not in your state. This is nationwide. This, to me, is kind of like a direct response to the 2016 election. Um, th this idea here, and the reason this came up is because Virginia just recently proposed it. Um, essentially, what this means is, say in New York State, uh, your candidate wins. Instead of your candidate taking those electoral votes um, into that December election... What what happens is whatever the majority of the country selects is what New York State will take. Um, now, New York State, I don't believe, is on this list. Um, I should actually get that list for you guys. But um, what what this means is you have even less representation if this happens. You have even less of a voice now if this happens. Because what this means is if you vote a certain way, even if you take the majority in your own state, doesn't matter. It's going to be based on the popular vote. So this this actually kind of changes things a little bit in the direction of what's called like a direct democracy. Now, we don't have a direct democracy. We're not even close. Um, I'll give you an example of where they're different. In a direct democracy, the people vote on like almost everything. Right? There's no purpose for representatives. So the way things work right now, you elect a representative, they go out, and they're supposed to represent you, your beliefs, your values, the reason you elected them, in the legislation they write, in the budgets they pass, etc. One of the benefits to that is they sh they're not just representing you, they're representing your neighbors too. They're representing the people down the street. They're representing your community as a whole. And your community as a whole still has voice in certain things. Um, that representative can stand up for those minority populations, um, those people who maybe have a differing view um, but didn't win the election. They can still reach out to the representatives and lobby for their, um, their cause, if you will. And that representative can take that into consideration as they create law, sign the budget, etc. In a direct democracy things basically go to referendum. So you just vote on everything um, in elections, which means that minority group maybe never gets a say um, because it's simply majority rule at that point. Um, so this, natural, this National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is moving us in that direction of direct democracy um, where the majority will always take place and you lose more representation for minority groups. Um, 
is that always going to be the case? No. But that is um, one of the consequences of moving in this direction. And one of the things I think would be a much better solution is to stop doing winner-takes-all states. Instead, allow people to work similar to Maine and Nebraska, where there's a proportional representation so that community groups can still get their representation, rural areas still get protection from maybe densely populated areas, and and giving people um, an adequate amount of say without giving any type of group um, more of an unfair advantage than the other. All right, guys, it is time for our last break of the hour. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about a bill that might have the ability to roll back some gun legislation. It's not often we get to talk about something like this. So we're going to talk about that and more when we come back on Radio Free New York. All right, welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister, and we're just wrapping up the discussion about the Electoral College, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which uh, essentially takes away even more representation from local communities. Um, and, and what I've got here, I, I when we went to break, I wanted to look this up for you guys to let you know... Um, who has already adopted this? So I've got this list for you. Uh, California, uh, Colorado has done it, but subject to a statewide vote this November. Um, Connecticut, D- District of Columbia, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York State, Oregon, uh, Rhode Island, and Virginia passed their house in this February. It's not totally law yet. Uh, Vermont and Washington. So those are the states that have enacted this uh, this compact that they'll enter. Um, that essentially, when enough states join, then they will switch over to whatever the national popular vote is. They will award that those votes um, to their electoral votes. So... Something that that I think could could use some fix some fixing. I I definitely think that we should move um, to ensuring that people have their voice. And I do believe that this takes away people's voice by just saying that they're just going to give all the electoral votes um, to whoever the national vote getter is. Um, to be honest, I think states that have winner takes all is, is the same thing. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's appropriate representation of the people. I think we can fix this. I think we can make it better. Uh, so with that being said, let's move on to this gun legislation. Um, it's actually, uh, kind, kind of a cool thing to come up. So this is from representative Robert or Roger Marshall, um, from Kansas. And this is in, response to short barreled rifles also known as sbrs um he says they're overregulated, and he put together a bill to change that um so for those of you who might not know why this is significant um why it matters or or any of that um i'll start with the second amendment we could we could just start there and end the conversation there um but i think it's actually worth discussing this and talking about just a little bit so people are aware of it and can get an idea of 
some of the things we should be talking with our representatives about. So um, the first thing is we actually had the opportunity to fix this and fix a, a bunch of other things when Republicans held the majority in Congress and they had the presidency. We could have fixed this then. We could have uh, resolved the constitutional carry item, you know, having reciprocity across the whole entire United States. Um, it didn't get done. So I say that to say this bill um, – unless it gets a tremendous amount of support, probably doesn't have a chance of getting passed. That's that's just my feeling on it. Um, you guys can disagree with me. That That's fine. Um, but I, I don't believe it's going to go anywhere, but I still think it's worth talking about. So what what is an SBR, short-barreled rifle? Why is this important? Well, because of the National Firearms Act. It essentially put extra restrictions on the ownership of what are called short-barreled rifles, and that's a rifle with a barrel shorter than 16 inches in length or that um, has a total length less than 26 inches. Now, here's, here's what's going on. The, you can get them. But you have to spend money. You have to pay an extra tax. You got to get that special stamp. Um, you have to go through this whole background check process. Um, literally all this extra red tape to own something based on an arbitrary number. If it's 16 inches, it's fine. If it's 15.9 inches, it's not. I, I mean, that's that's really what this comes down to. So what what this bill sponsor, Marshall, he, he basically says that short-barreled rifles are in common use, um, and common use is really important because there have been Supreme Court rulings about things in common use. Um, he says they're commonly used for hunting, personal defense, and competitive shooting. Uh, as of May this year, 417,167 short-barreled rifles were listed on the National Firearms Registration and Transfer Records. So, yeah, we're talking about close to half a million rifles here. That's pretty good numbers to say these are in common use. Um, and this is a good topic because gun control doesn't work. We know this. Um, but the NFA, the National Firearms Act, really creates two separate classes of citizens, those who can afford these sort of things and those who cannot. And this National Firearms Act literally says it, it makes it so that if you're wealthy, if you have money, um, you can have access to self-defense in the way you feel is appropriate to defend yourself. And if you're not wealthy... Um, guess what? You, you're essentially a second-class citizen when it comes to self-defense. You can maybe defend yourself and maybe not. It, it depends on your financial situation. Um, so, so I think it's really important to bring this to light. Um, it looks like right now gun owners of America and the NRA are supporting the bill, um, even though it's, it's ironic because the NRA actually backed the National Firearms Act when it became law. Um, so they actually helped make it happen. They supported it. And now they're, <laughs> they're supporting a bill to dial it back, repeal portions of it, um, that sort of thing. So another reason that this is important to discuss is I talk very often about how there's like unintended consequences of law and that people will eventually just find loopholes anyways. Um, 
essentially what's happening now, and we'll we'll use the AR-15 platform because that is undoubtedly the most popular firearm in America um, in terms of, of rifles here. And But there, there's so many others. I mean, there's so many variants. But what I'm seeing in stores and what's happening across the nation is instead of buying short-barreled rifles, people are just buying AR-15 pistols. And they're similar size, similar structured, but they operate within the guidelines of the law to not be considered a short-barreled rifle. And this has gone through the ATF a couple times. There's been some back and forths. And as it stands today, AR-15 pistols, totally fine. And so it just goes to show that this National Firearms Act um, is, A, it's bad law, it's unconstitutional, it's bad legislation, and it it's essentially ineffective anyways. So why is it on the books? Um, and I'm going to say, you guys need to call your representatives and say, hey, why didn't you fix this when you had the chance, and you better fix it now? Um, because we just spent the whole show talking about representative government and how representative government can prevent things like mob rule and majorityism, right? So you now have the opportunity to take advantage of that. This may not be the case five, ten years from now. We may move to more of a direct democracy, and that might be better for our Second Amendment rights. That might be worse for our Second Amendment rights. Um, I can't predict that. I can't tell you which way it goes. I can just tell you how it works today and how we should approach this issue today. Um, so I definitely recommend you call your representatives and you you start talking to them about these things. Talk with them about um, you know the winner-takes-all process in your state and ask them for a more representative model. Um, talk with them about the National Firearms Act. Talk with them about the Sullivan Act. Talk with them about whatever is important to you because guess what? Elections are coming up this year which means this year especially your elected representatives are going to be listening uh, their hardest. You know, there's the situation where they listen to you really good uh, right before getting elected, and then it kind of seems like after they get elected, they maybe listen a little bit, but they start going back on their promises. They start uh, doing things that maybe they misrepresented how they were going to handle things. And then about nine months before election time, all of a sudden they're really receptive to hearing uh, what's important to you. So that's my recommendation to you guys. Reach out to your representatives. Participate in the process because they might not be your representatives after November. All right, guys, you're listening to Radio Free New York. Thank you so much for joining me. Tomorrow is Fake News Friday. We'll catch you guys same time, same place.